1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm so excited to be hosting my first NBN party. And by that I mean that this is my first interview with three guests at the same time. (laughs) And I'm Delighted because I will be able to talk to Dr. kemia Deyemi, Dr. Karim Kubchandani, and Dr. Ramon Rivera Cervera about the fantastic book they co-edited, Queer Nightlife, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. In 25 essays and interviews by leading scholars and artists, queer nightlife centers, queer and trans people of color, who apprehend the risky medium of the night to explore, know, and stage their bodies, genders, and sexualities in the face of systemic and social negation. Dr. Kemi Adayemi is Assistant Professor of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies and Director of the Black Embodiment Studio at the University of Washington. Dr. Karim Kubchandani is the Mellon Bridge Assistant Professor in Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Tufts University. Dr. Ramon Rivera Cervera is Dean of the College of Fine Arts and Professor of Theater and Dance at the University of Texas at Austin. So I usually uh, give uh, the listeners a bit more information about the authors. I didn't even talk about all your wonderful publications. But to avoid uh, folks getting tired of my voice before we even start this interview, and so that they can start identifying you, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, introducing your, your, yourselves?
2: Sure, I'll go first. Uh, so I'm Karim Kupchandani, and I teach at Tufts University. And you know I, I, I teach classes on queer nightlife. And I actually recently taught this very book, um, with with my undergraduate and graduate students. And it was really a joy to share this new product with them. I also uh, re- I, I do research on queer nightlife in India and the South Asian diaspora. I, re- I also write about drag and my new obsession is aunties and all the strange and wonderful things they do for us.
3: I'll go. Um... Uh, yeah, I'm Kemi Adeyemi. I teach in um, the Gender Women Sexuality Studies Department at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, yeah, my teaching focus is mostly on Black queer studies and Black feminist studies. Um, I'm teaching a class right now um, on Black feminist geographies. My, my writing, I'm, I'm finishing a book. I guess it's almost basically finished. I have a book coming out with Duke next fall, officially fall 2022. Uh, called Feels Right, which is an ethnography of Black queer women's social dance practices in Chicago. Um, And yeah, that's just where my brain has been. I couldn't even tell you any other publications I have out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Ramon Rivera Cervera, and I'm just recently relocated to here to Texas, Austin, where I did my own doctoral studies here. So a lot of the work of my first book, Performing Queer Latinidad, was born out of my time here, um, doing ethnography on queer nightlife in the region, um, and then expanding it to other geographies where I traverse since then. I'm not yet teaching here at my institution, since I'm doing mostly administrative work, but I'm completing a book project called Reggaeton's Queer Turn, that looks at contemporary art responses and appropriations of the genre, uh, the musical genre and dance genre and culture of reggaeton um, towards queer and feminist directions.
1: Well, welcome, my warmest welcome to the three of you to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And can you tell us this book's origin story, or how did it come about? Ramon, I think you should
3: start because you—you you are the origin story in so many <laughs> ways.
0: Well, no, it's—it's it's really the three of us. Uh, so this is a project, you know. I, what the three of us met at Northwestern University in a department called Performance Studies, where I was on faculty and. Kareem and Kemi uh, completed their PhD studies um, in that program, and so this project is born out of our collaboration that extended from a class I used to teach on the subject, um, and my interest In the amazing work that the two of them were developing independently as researchers and as performers and as people who were invested uh, quite broadly on Queer Nightlife. So, So it's really born of an invitation out of my own... Uh, desire to learn from the brilliance of these two scholars and the kind of, you know, the, the networks and the practices that they were documenting and advocating for in their own scholarship. Um, and as a slightly older member of the group, I'm <laughs> interested in thinking about all of the things that they were turning to in their own research and practices uh, and reflect back to the kinds of practices that I myself documented, uh, a decade prior, right? So, so thinking about the resonances, the drastic political economic differences, and how queer nightlife unraveled between then and and then, which was at some point now. Um, and and I think what's been beautiful about the collaboration is, you know, at some point after the coursework portion of it, it became a symposia that we held at Northwestern University. Then it became a proposal to the American Society for Theater Research for the Jose Muñoz Collaborative Grant uh, in underrepresented areas of the field um, that allowed us three years of focused, concentrated workshop with other scholars similarly aligned so that Kemi and Kareem's back then now became then, and we started cultivating other scholars that were similarly uh, a few years um, of, of ahead of us in terms of looking at the contemporary of Queer Nightlife. And it's just that the relationship between what was ethnographic contemporary and the building archive of what became a larger history of Queer Nightlife amass over all of those years and became this beautiful project that is both a labor of love and collaboration among the three of us and the whole cohort of folks.
3: I also think, you know, the the original, the first symposium, I can't remember what year that was, but I think that we were also the three of us trying to figure out or in the midst of figuring out how we were in conversation with other fields and other thinkers um, around us that we were reading or meeting up with and not necessarily having a sense of, um, I don't wanna say completeness, but like a sense of uh, an established conversation that we were entering into. Um, And so I think at least for me, certainly the long process of beginning those conversations and ending in this book was all was very much a process of kind of finding my discipline for lack of a better word or finding the field um, and naming it uh, and and naming not only the kind of immediate boundaries that we could sense, but um, naming how much further we could push those boundaries. So, you know, not necessarily finding a sense of home in say, dance studies or, or having a hard time, at least for me, figuring out where where were the black queer social dance studies conversations happening in, the, in that sort of more cohesive at that time um, department or field or, or line of thinking. And so the whole queer nightlife project, I think of it as very much a project beyond this book um, was very much a project of setting up the conditions in which I could articulate myself as a faculty member at this point in my career, as part of a conversation that was real and valid and interesting and complex and and worthy of study.
1: Yes. Well, I'll ask you a little bit more about this idea of the subjects that are worthy of studies a, a bit later, but because uh, that's something I'm, I'm I think about a lot. Uh, but. As somebody who sort of identifies as an itinerant researcher, the first, the, the opening sentence in the book really already caught my attention and and grabbed me. Uh, you say here that much of this book was completed in travel and that it's a, as much a travelogue as it is a theorization of queer nightlife in motion. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Karim, you wanna answer that one? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one one of one of the ways that we arrive at the idea of the travelogue is that when we, <clears throat> since the symposium, we hadn't had the chance to be with each other and write, and we chose to to go to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, to actually write the introduction, to write together, um, to compile all the essays, to give feedback to authors, um, and you know, arriving from from different places, but but also while we were there, we were Hopping from nightclub to nightclub and realizing what kinds of desires drove us to find different kinds of spaces in a city that some of us, that at least one of us was familiar with, but the other two were um, were strangers to. And so, just the, those kinds of feelings that we were having while we were writing together, I think, really reminded us of the value of. Itinerance and movement and migration and the impulses that drive our writing, um, as we find each other and have and surprise each other and surprise and find surprise in new places. Um, I think the other is also, you know, the 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 kind of um, interdisciplinarity of the authors who are coming from anthropology and performance studies and women's and gender studies and and there and there are various global positions and locations i think is also part of this project's itinerance that it um it doesn't want to locate itself in one place uh, as a, a, a disciplinary home or a geographic home and and i think you know the the story the most valuable story that people always tell of queer nightlife is that of Stonewall in New York, and it, it fixes and locates queer nightlife in one place. And I think the, this book and, and our, our project is trying to disrupt the singular location of the story of queer nightlife.
1: As you just mentioned, right, there's such a diversity here in terms of disciplines, methodologies, and geographical location. So how did you decide on which pieces to include? And uh, what do these authors have in common? How do these pieces fit together? I think the
3: the decision making process was took place over many years, and we had different approaches to it. Um, so for example, uh, the kind of first round of thinking that we had about what might a book look like was based on the people that we had invited to that um, first queer nightlife symposium at Northwestern, and we sort of started with that core idea of, of those people who were involved in that conversation, and kind of c- like continually, slowly, year after year, just kind of transformed our understandings of what queer nightlife was or what queer nightlife studies was, um, and. You know, we also just had to kind of do a lot of digging to, to find people. It is a really interdisciplinary cohort of people um, to do a lot of digging, to find people who were doing this kind of work, um, but maybe in departments or national organizations that maybe it wasn't super um, obvious or something like that. Um, so it, it was, it's, you know, there, there's just kind of many rings of, of social and, and um uh, professional networks that are kind of appearing um, in the book. I think definitely the thing that brings everybody together is a commitment to performance um, as as a as a, a site to study and a, as a methodology, as as a way of thinking and thinking with um, everyday life, uh, even if people are not necessarily flagging themselves as trained in performance studies, you know, programs or working in the field of performance studies no matter, I think, who you're reading in this book, you are seeing a demonstration of how to think with performance, how to take the body seriously at multiple scales, you know, from the intimacy of a, of a gesture on the dance floor to to the the global movements that are happening within and, and across each of the chapters. And so I think in many ways, you know, while the, the the thematically the book is interested in queer nightlife, I think it's also useful to think about the project as a, an a as a demonstration of what performance and performance studies can do.
1: So now I'm going to ask you the question that I was alluding to a little bit before. This I've, this has been on my mind since I started reading your book. But as you can see, I cannot even... Uh, really articulate it very well. But I wanted you to talk about this idea or the issue of, I don't know if it's something you've encountered or maybe I'm just using this to get some advice from three amazing scholars. <laughs> so this idea of serious or valid research, right? Because I uh, am working with what you so beautifully called here, minoritarian practices that are deemed fickle, trivial, and escapist. I, uh, In my case, I studied carnivals and drag pageants. So, I, I feel that at times I am sort of having to defend the idea that this is uh, uh, that I do serious and, and valid research, maybe because I'm also deriving pleasure and fun, and, and there's so much joy in my research process. So would any of you want to comment on, on that?
0: I, I'll do just a really quick one and then pass the baton because I think everybody in the room has really compelling uh, responses to this. But I think this is one place where Kemi's articulation of, of what the optics of performance uh, allows is really the, the kind of taking seriously um, the criticality of play and pleasure um, and, and, and allow us, you know, what we've done in a way is really from that minoritarian queer uh, perspective, you know, animate what, what have been some, you know, long standing analytics and areas of scholarly emphasis and allowance of the field, right? Um, and, and it's a way of kind of, you know, it's not dissimilar to the eccentricity, something like the arts may have posed general areas of social scientific study in earlier periods right but the urgency that that we bring to that intervention is is particularly what you have named right the fact that that these spaces of of queer conviviality um and 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 the mining of pleasure by those communities is actually serious business about economies, about politics, and about the possibilities of, of a future of a collective future in, in that particular context.
3: Kareem, do you want to go next? Yeah, I guess um, I
2: when when I when I was told about performance studies, I was um, and someone said, you know, you can study this thing that you do. Going to bars and parties and performing Bollywood dances, I was so embarrassed and so happy at the same time. I was, I was like, "I, I th- that that permission that I was given, and and the person who who did that was uh, her name is Berta Huttar, uh, and she was teaching at Williams College at the time, and I just." I, I I thought it was so amusing and delightful, right? And 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 it's that very feeling that I carry through my research, and I, I continue to to do it, right? That um, I'm people always say when I talk about my my research, people always say, "Oh, that sounds so fun," as if research is not supposed to be right. And I think that there's this kind of disciplining that's happening around us, but at least in you know in performance studies. I I think we' we're, we're, we give each other permission to enjoy our research and take pleasure in it. Um, and be, because we' are, we're actually our work is premised on investigating violence and trauma and uh, and minor minoritarian struggle, we, we, we never lose sight of that right That's always informing, <laughs> Um, our work, but our investment in surprise and delight and awe and pleasure uh, helps us enjoy that work at the same time, and and to um, to enjoy our work as academics as well.
3: I I also think that the three of us, in terms of who we are as people and the kinds of people that we work with and study and think with and write about, you know, we're operating in um, an academic system and a sort of US American intellectual culture that expects us because we are not white people to be doing a particular kind of political work all of the time, or that the work we do um, should have some sort of resonance you know, in terms of policy or the formal political sphere, there's that there's that burden of expectation that the work we do is serious in that way. And that the people that we study, that we always kind of frame them as operating within a kind of similar with with similar sort of political expectations. And I think I think we're all three invested in this, and I think this is work that more people can continue to, to do and sort of enrich this conversation, that the kinds of things that happen in the club or on the dance floor, while maybe not um, immediately visible as of serious political importance, really do a lot for the people who are moving their bodies or who are on and around the dance floor. You know, those moments are... Uh, moments where people are articulating their relationships to politics, where they're articulating their relationships to one another, where they're articulating their relationships to, and often their frustrations with the um, ways that they're governed, not only in the club, but as soon as they leave the club. And that the kinds of things that happen on the dance floor and the kinds of practices that people engage in have such political vitality And are often done in place of or um, in response to or alongside of things like, you know, going to vote. And I think being more attentive to how complex political thinking and complex political practices are happening through the rubrics of play and pleasure can open us up to think more critically about the kinds of work that we can be doing, like to be more imaginative of what kinds of work do we expect from black and brown people who are faculty members and our graduate students and the kinds of things that we should be teaching about and writing about.
1: Yes, and uh, well, I really appreciate your answers, but also what you wrote about this in the book. Um, as I am a historian, so and I'm a Brazilian historian at that, working in the U.S. for all of my my grad studies, and so I always felt that when people said that my research seemed fun. It wasn't. Uh, I did. It didn't feel as a compliment at times. Mm-hmm. When people told me, "Oh, that sounds a lot of fun. What you're doing?" So your work, your uh, your and your comments now sort of help me validate this. So thank you. <laughs> um, I for for the next part of the interview, uh, I would love if we could talk about every single one of the contributions here because they're all amazing but that that would take a few interviews to get through that <laughs> so i would like us to talk about instead of the four sections of the book we have before inside show and after but before we do that could you talk about the decision to divide the book this way did the pieces suggest this structure or did you come up with the structure first and then sort of try to accommodate the pieces into that structure
2: so we actually invited folks to write uh, towards the section. So we, we thought of the structure um, as a way of uh, thinking nightlife beyond the space of, of just the, the the inside, right? I think that's the sort of the go-to to think about what nightlife studies looks like. But in order for the book in its structure to make the argument that nightlife extends um, into the body, into, uh, into the everyday body, into... Um, all parts of our lives and 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 beings, we, we were using that the structure of the book to make the argument uh, about how queer and trans bodies are governed by time, and so so we invited folks into different sections, um, and, and worked with them and had conversations about how, how their research might fit and, and, um, how, adjusting their abstracts to, um, meet the, the kind of expectations of before inside show and after. And the, the other thing I'll say is, you know, I, I, for me, it was really important to separate inside and show because, uh, when I've taken students to, uh, to a queer nightlife event, they often get very distracted by the show, you know, the big spectacle of the the night comes to dominate the conversation about what is happening inside when actually if you look at the dance floor and sartorial style and economic exchanges happening and affective moments between bartenders and and patrons, all of that matters too. And so really making sure that there was a separation between those things was was also important.
3: Yeah, I think like in terms of why we organized it along that timeline, Kareem mentioned this. I think we were, we ourselves were getting kind of stuck on our own presumptions about where queer nightlife takes place. Or, you know, rather me, Kareem and Ramon, we all circulate in different kinds of queer nightlife spaces. And so it was kind of like a a productive problem of like, how do we map this? And what are the dangers of trying to too cleanly map this out? And so I think... Organizing it around the various different kinds of ways that people prepare to enter the night, inhabit the night, experience the night, and leave the night—that's Um, that's, you know—I just thought that that was—I I still like think about that as as a really productive way of thinking about the capaciousness of that phrase queer nightlife and to, to kind of unlock ourselves from our associations of queer nightlife or nightlife happening in a bar alone, you know, or, or the, the classic gay bar or something like that.
0: Right. And and to think along with, with, with that, it was also a, a really productive way to think about the range of performance right in terms of the moments when that temporality speaks to the time of the event but also the ways in which a performance analytic also speaks so much more broadly to history, right? And you know, which is, you know, one of my, you know, and maybe I'm just that kind of nostalgic queen, but but that section of after where where the timelines of of what comes next blur between the end of the night and the end of the club (laughs) uh, become really compelling places to think about how a performance analytic allows, allows us to advance this interdisciplinary work, some of which is historical, some of which is ethnographic, some of which is Purely theoretical um, and, and, and its aspirations, right? So, so I, I think it gives us a, a really way of, a productive way of operationalizing um, queer nightlife through that performance analytic uh, that Kemi was invoking earlier.
1: So let's start uh, with the before section. You show here that nightlife begins way before the sun sets. Um, what is the section about? What does it cover? And can you mention some of the contributions here?
2: Yeah, I can. I can start this. Um, so some of it is are about the myths and the uh, that. Exist about nightlife. Um, for for example, Martin Manliness's essay that that magical touch uh, thinks about um, the the mi- mysterious Vaseline Alley in Jackson Heights, and the the very numerous stories that people tell of where it is and what happens there and what kind of play happens around the 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 two bars that that are under the train tracks there in Jackson Heights, but all. Th- and, and similarly, um, DJ Reka in my interview with her, talks about the histories that people bring to the club with them, right? So there are these myths and histories that are existing in our bodies and in our imaginations that drive us to even go to a neighborhood or a bar. Um, but then there's the kind of choice-making that okay. If we're gonna decide to go out, how are we gonna bring our bodies? How are we gonna dress our bodies? Prepare. Um, and so Caleb Luna thinks about what it what it means to dress their fat brown body for the night. Um, and again, is thinking about well, what am I anticipating when I go out, and how do I uh, bring my body into that space? And then you arrive at the space and. You can't actually get in, right? And there's the act of waiting um, that Emily Bach meditates on, as uh, as Emily's waiting to get into the ball and thinking about the the kinds of activities that are happening in the line alone and the, the sweet transactions that are happening between folks before they even get in. Um, and then you finally get to the door, and there's the bouncer, um, and uh, who is who's telling you who's already sending messages about um, who's allowed in or out, um, and and so they're your first personal interface. And Karen Jaime, uh, writing about her experiences uh, at Nowhere Bar in, in New York, uh, at working as a bouncer, is also thinking about... The, the tension, that, that threshold of just entering, and the experience of managing the sort of external s- state legislations about who's allowed to be in or outside the space, where is alcohol supposed to be or not, and who has to enforce the, the kind of joy and wonder inside of the bar in relation to um, what the state wants the outside public s- sphere and space to be.
3: Kareem is so good at recapping information. <laughs> oh <my>
1: God,
3: <laughs> <man. Whoa. laughs> I'm not going to be that good, but, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the next section is inside and um, there's like, so much that happens at any given queer nightlife space, it's kind of impossible to attend to all of it. But I think that our section on the inside really um, tries to capture the many of like the very the sort of small interactions that can happen that make queer nightlife feel alive and the the bigger, more systemic interactions that, that you know, structure our very capacities to kind of enter into a queer nightlife space. So I think this section is very much about the many different kinds of sensations that come along with the queer nightlife space. And that the fact that those sensations are going to change depending on what kind of space you're in, um, or, you know, the, the sensation of being in the traditional bar space is going to be very different than being at a, um, a burlesque show. So if the, the interview that I do with Miss Brickhouse, who is a burlesque performer and organizer here in Seattle, that, that conversation is really about the histories of burlesque and, um, the experience and uh, the, the feeling of being up on stage, but also the, just sheer hard work that it takes to put on queer nightlife events like whether you're bartending or you're organizing or you're hosting an event. Um, so I think in a lot of ways the inside section is asking us to, to think about the different kinds of ways of moving that are not just dancing that happen and the different kinds of ways of doing politics, um, whether that means um, negotiating the dance floor um, and using your body to negotiate the politics of the dance floor or using the the dance floor is a place where you can organize um, into sort of cooperative union-like arrangements in order to advocate your for advocate for yourselves and um, for your community. So I think, um, yeah, the the inside it's kind of it's one of the most expansive sections I think, and and one of the one of the sections that really demonstrates. A, a very broad field of what we might think of as queer nightlife studies and, and where it is continuing to develop into.
0: And, and I would say that, you know, and, and, and jumping onto the next section, which is show, I think it became a place where we really wanted to exert some pressure on on the history of queer nightlife studies that precedes us and in many ways so so much of the emphasis on what is on stage so here we are indeed looking at the performances, the repertoires, what gets put on in in, in a public context emergent for queer nightlife. But what I really love about this section is that it expands the geographic directionality of those repertoires, right? So we have Claire Croft working with Trajal Harrell's for the stage, experimental dance piece uh, that draws from Queer Nightlife, but attaches to a larger discussion of experimental aesthetics. Um, and, but then you have all kinds of other things from performances that happen in more traditional carnival street contexts um, to fashion shows that animate informal economies uh, among trans sex workers in Brazil, um, you know, so, so we have a real range of, of directions where, where the repertoires of queer nightlife become highly consequential to public life beyond the exclusive... Stage of the club, right? Um, and and you know we move really internationally in, in this section between Peru, uh, I'm sorry, Chile, um, with, with the folklore performances of La Familia Galan, um, drag kings in Cuba, um, the work of the mushes, uh in a transnational context, um, and and the beautiful interview that Maver de la Cruz conducts with, uh, and I'm gonna get. The name wrong, so I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, so I don't Puerto Ricanize uh, <laughs> beautiful um, Eastern European last name, uh, but but a performer of Middle Eastern dance forms who assumes femme choreographic strategies in in their presentation of belly dancing. So so all of those, which which is an economy of nightlife, not often attributed queer space, right? And all of a sudden seeing how varied the global repertoires of, of nightlife are and their potential incursions into a broader public sphere is just so rich and and demonstrates that, that the many future potential research sites, directions, and areas that the field um, can animate and embrace.
2: And I'm just going to add about show, one of the things I love is that... There we see a lot of drag, but the drag doesn't happen in the drag nightclub. For you know, it happens in um, a lesbian household. It happens at the uh, um, in indigenous vela, It happens at the fiesta, and. Um, the the ball ha- ball culture happens on the the formal stage of Judson Church or it happens in Lebanon in in the interview so it just it like shifts our orientation about where the show even happens which I really love um, and then in after we open that section with uh, an essay from Juana Maria Ro- Rodriguez who uh, details a show about the loss of nightlife but it's a nightlife tour um about the the closing of uh of queer spaces in San Francisco and the Bay Area um by and the the performance is led by Sandra Ibara and it just it it gets us thinking about the the loss of nightlife the after of when the clubs are closed but but at the same time stages nightlife and therefore nightlife is is never lost even while spaces close due to gentrification um, and and sort of ne- neoliberal expansions in the tech industry, um, for E. Patrick Johnson, as as he thinks about the the opening and closing of uh, black queer nightlife in the South, he he sort of takes us to the before and the after. With the before, he offers us myths and creative storytelling that imagines black queer nightlife before the moment of bars and and nightclubs but also details again how gentrification requires some spaces to to close um, with keeping it on the download from jifei Cheng we're we're offered a uh, a beautiful transfer of nightlife across between the pacific and and Atlantic, um between the Harlems ball scene and Hawaii's uh, drag scene and the way that movies a movie like Paris is Burning <laughs> extends the life of nightlife beyond the moment of performance um, into the digital sphere and back into the body. And so, you know, Again the, the even, even a prob- problematic film like Paris is Burning in the Way that it circulates enables more nightlife and and so the, the after of nightlife is more nightlife. And I'm gonna let Ramon talk about his interview that he did. Oh, Thank
3: you.
0: There, there's not a lot to say there other than, you know, it's just such a delightful interview and we wanted to bookend, you know, we opened the book with our own collective travels um, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And it's just so beautiful to close the book with one of our most public Puerto Rican indie queer musicians reminiscing about. Queer nightlife in the 1980s, uh, and and this really beautifully bitchy, <laughs> 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 thinking through the sort of high stakes of style and genre and their consequential nature to to what we animate forward in 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 other aesthetic forms. So, so it's really beautiful because it's this this carrying forth of previous nightlife experiences into the proposal and animation of new aesthetic practices that in turn become embraced as nightlife as well. So there's a kind of flirtation between the place of nightlife and the work of art um, that that just felt like a, the right kind of signature closing, uh, both in terms of the geographic return in this travel log but also the animation that our work is intended to do in 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 approximating queer nightlife from so many different perspectives not as a way of fix it but uh, fixing it but as a way of animating it forward into other forms into other places into other approximations of value and economy and potentiality
1: Okay, me. All three of you uh, provided here master classes on the art of summarizing complex. <laughs> <diamonds>. <laughs> wow, I'm just wowed here. So, uh, yeah, I have to confess that this was uh, uh, at first uh, when I was trying to prepare for this was a very difficult interview because there was so much. It's just this is such a rich, rich text with so many amazing contributions. I I started with sort of like, I don't know, 20 questions that we would never get time to to cover in this podcast. And then I decided to go with the sections, but I didn't know if it would work. But, you know, the three of you, I I couldn't have wished for anything uh, more perfect than this. So to sort of uh, conclude uh, our conversation, I would like to know what you the three of you are up to next. What are your new projects? And uh, But once again, say how much I appreciate uh, not only this book, but your work in general. As I mentioned, I'm a historian. I'm not, not a performance studies scholar, but I... I use, I, I resort to performance studies a lot to understand, to try to contextualize the, the people that I I, I, I work as an oral historian, right? The, 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 the experiences I'm trying to document. So thank you again. So who wants to start by telling me what new fabulous project they, they're working on next? <laughs>
3: I'll start, cause I think I'm the freshest of the three of us. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm currently awaiting copy edits for my book, which I think will come down any day now. And um, you know, it, it's it's in some ways a pretty traditional dance ethnography um, in that it's taking. Um, you know, I've I've conducted you know long ter- many many interviews over you know the last ten years with. Black queer people who dance and throw parties and DJ parties, asking them about, you know, where, when and why do you dance, you know, to, to sort of make it really, really simplistic. Um, And just really thinking about the ways that Black queer people use dance in a city like Chicago that has really restricted their ways of moving and feeling and how the dance floor becomes a place where they can, um, sort of like I was saying earlier, articulate their relationships to neoliberal development and neoliberal governance um, in that city. But uh, the book is really You know, making an argument that for all of the ways that queer nightlife allows us to take pleasure, you know, in the midst of the violence of neoliberal capitalism, um, as as much as we can take pleasure in those scenes, the, the function is always like a mess. Like there's always conflict. People are always fighting. The music is always off in some way. There's always some sort of antagonism between the dancers and the organizers. It's just like high drama all of the time. And so how can we take these, the the sort of minor conflicts of and around the dance floor as a way to think about the really, um, Deep, complex political thinking that Black queer people are doing about their status in the city and how they can transform it, even if it is just um, going to feel transformed, you know, next month at the next party. Um, and so I'm just, you know, putting the, the finishing touches on that and, uh, you know, allegedly coasting until next summer. <laughs>
2: um so I uh, I, fi- I published a book last year called Ishtail, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife," and uh, part of that project involved me actually performing in the nightclub with my friends, and I was uh, and I started doing drag uh, during that uh, project, and and drag has suddenly become central to how I think of myself, my methodology, and when I go to a new city. The first thing I do is look for the the closest thing to a drag show, whether it's um, uh, you know uh, parades or nightclub events, but any, anything that sort of resembles drag, I want to see it. Um, and the, and and that impulse has led me to write a book called Decolonized Drag, which is being published with Or Books in a series called Decolonize That. But it's thinking through the ways that. Drag and as a and and gender performance as a practice has been really privatized and uh, made unavailable to multiple kinds of people and bodies and genders, through through RuPaul's Drag Race, but also through a, a longer history of, um, binarizing gender in in the pursuit of colonization, and um and I. I it's the preface and the the conclusion are written by my drag persona Lahore, Rajasthan, and then the middle chapters are both the historicizing relationships between gender and uh, gender and empire, and also thinking about actually giving how to's on how to, how to do your makeup in ways that might be subversive or playful or, uh, right against the assumed performances that people of color are supposed to put on their bodies. Um, so it's, it's a fun book. It's, and, and, and it, uh, It moves across performances from Thailand to Latin America to India, from my own ethnographic research to a lot of very fantastic performances I've watched via YouTube. Um, And it was a lot of fun to write in a different mode from the kind of um, scholarly text. And as
0: I mentioned before, I'm I'm completing this manuscript called Reggaeton Square Turn, and I have another beautiful collaborative project from my time in the midwest that it's about latinx uh placemaking in the midwest that it's another long-term Collaborative process with a group of scholars and researchers in the region, documenting the ways in which Latinx communities institute plays through cultural performance practices. But, but most importantly, I think uh, I'm I'm at a moment where a lot of my work is starting ke- taking a practical um, direction, and you know. One of the reasons we were also in Puerto Rico is because I've been working in commissioning and advancing uh, new contemporary performance work there, and the next stage of that process is is in development now. Uh, it's a project called the Puerto Rican Arts Initiative, and the new cohort of artists includes significantly a vast number of queer nightlife practitioners who have advanced uh, dual practices between the time of the club and the work of other um, aesthetic performance practices. So we have somebody like Eduardo Alegria, who I interview at the end of the of, of the book, really working uh, on a piece about queer collaboration with the indie music scene in Puerto Rico. We have somebody like Pucci Platon working on this um Curatorial platform at Lagoico Cultural Center in Santurce, Puerto Rico, uh, about performance makers and art makers who all met in the 1990s. Um, but so, so there's a series, there's a couple of Vogue houses, Voguing houses that have started developing. Um, also experimental voguing calls and competitions but also formal choreographic practice and my favorite uh, practitioner of recent and somebody that Kareem has gotten to engage with as well, Paul Rodil who came in uh, into the scene as a drag king performer who then developed a series of political performance practices and now is developing a trans performance laboratory to develop performance skills and advanced public and aesthetic performances within a collective collaborative framework so so that's where my work is headed now into really just making sure there's there's a platform for the next generation of work especially after this year and a half of isolation so so getting back to the hunger of gathering and doing together again
1: Yes. Well, uh, this all sounds just amazing, and I'm looking forward to all of it. And I'll already state my case here humbly for you all to come back and do interviews with me for your next books. So if you would like to. Yes, Yes. absolutely. So so if you enjoyed our NBN party, please come back.
0: (laughs) Thank you for having us. You, you've been such a generous interviewer and interlocutor. It's just great to be in, in, in discussion with folks who, who have such innovative perspectives and generosity to the work that we're doing.
1: Well, thank, thank you so much, really, really, for taking the, your time. Your, uh, uh, I know you're all busy folks, so I really appreciate it. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books in Gender and Sexuality Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. And I just spoke with Dr. Kemi Adeyeemi, Dr. Karim Kubchandani, and to Dr. Ramon Rivera Cervera about Queer Nightlife, which they co-edited and was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. I'm Isabel Machado until next time.